Louie, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Rose? Where we're going, we don't need Rose. No. I am your father. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. You're listening to After the Ending, the only film podcast where we tell you what happens after the ending of your favorite films. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Spring and Phil Edwards. Hello and welcome to After the Ending. I'm Mike Spring. And I'm Phil Edwards. And Phil, how are you today? I'm pretty good, Mike. I had a bit of a problem though. I was trying to get a load of booze for that party we were trying to arrange. Oh. Uh, it all went a bit haywire. Yeah. When I, I had the car that I thought was mine wasn't mine. It turned out it was a police car and I was chased down uh, the, the motorway or highway, as you Americans would call it. Right, right. Uh, and uh, crashed off the road, but ended up getting in the back of a wagon, which turned out to be full of booze. So here I am now. So I can only record quickly, though, because the police are closing in uh-huh. and could turn up at any time. Oh, I, I thought you were going to say that you were put into a van with a bunch of monkeys, but uh, a bunch of booze, <laughs> I guess, is maybe preferable. A bunch of booze, yeah. <laughs> I, didn't think, I didn't think of linking them. Uh-huh. So what about you? How, how have you been? Oh, great. I'm just trying to figure out how we're both going to attend the same parties since you live in England and I live in America. But, you know, I mean... I, well, I, I think if I drink enough booze, <laughs> I'll probably just wake up You're right. and we'll be at the same party. You'll hallucinate me? Yeah, probably. Or I'll just somehow manage to stumble into a plane or a ship, which will get me there. I mean, honestly, that makes about as much sense as the plot of Superbad. So I'm okay with it. Yes, it does. Uh, it's... Movie magic booze. Yeah. Don't yeah. drink kids. Right. Exactly. Uh, well, there you go. So um, that's, uh, <laughs> that is, uh, it's an interesting story, Phil. Can't wait to hear what happens. But meanwhile, let's get into our episode. <laughs> Why don't you tell the listeners what we have in store for them in this episode? Part of which we've already revealed clearly. Yeah. One of the films is going to be super bad. Uh, this, Yay. Uh, the Jonah Hill and Michael Sarah film. Yay. And we're also going to be doing 1987's Project X, which is not the house party one from a few years back. This one is the one with uh, Matthew Broderick and a monkey. Several monkeys, actually, but most, mostly Yeah, it's quite a few monkey, monkeys. But... Yeah. yeah, so that's what we're doing for after the endings. And Mike's going to tell us about our top 10 films. Yes, yeah, so for our 100 years of Hollywood and 100 episodes, we are wrapping up our first take. Uh, well, our only take, but that'll make more sense later. But we are going to be finishing up our 50s, <laughs> uh, which is going to include the years 1950, 1952, 54, 56, 57, and 59. All right, well, what do you say we start off with Project X, shall we? That sounds good to me. Mike, do you want to give us a rundown of the events of the film? Because I had forgotten it, and I imagine quite a few listeners who've seen the film might need uh, their memories refreshed. Yes, and I try to keep it short, but there's a little bit more going on than I expected, so uh, I'll do the best I can. Uh, this was Project X from 1987. It stars Matthew Broderick, Helen Hunt, and William Sadler, and I think a lot of people have seen this movie, people of a certain age at least. Uh, I don't know that it's the most well-seen film we've ever done in terms of like being in repeats all the time on TV and stuff. Yeah, but I remember yeah. that at the time, everyone my age saw this movie. You know, It was like one of those sort of hit movies that wasn't that big of a hit, but kind of... Everyone of a certain age saw it, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. And I remember the trailer being on all the videos at the time. Yeah. You know, like a couple of years afterwards, it was always being pushed and there was posters and things like that. Right, right. So reach back in the recesses of your mind and picture Matthew Broderick in like an Air Force jumpsuit and it will start to come back to you. But here's the story. Graduate student Terry McDonald, played by Helen Hunt, has trained a chimpanzee named Virgil to use sign language. When her research grant doesn't get renewed, she's forced to sell Virgil who is secretly taken to an Air Force base to be used in a top-secret research project to teach chimps to fly aircraft. Enter airman Jimmy Garrett, played by Matthew Broderick, who bonds with Virgil and figures out that he knows sign language. He informs his superior, Dr. Carroll, played by William Sadler, who just doesn't care. What Jimmy doesn't know is that when the chimps reach a certain level of the aircraft simulator they're training on, they're going to be killed by radiation to simulate how long a pilot can survive after a nuclear explosion. When he finds this out, Jimmy contacts Terry for help in saving Virgil. They arrive just as Virgil's about to be killed, and Jimmy challenges Dr. Carroll and the assembled observers and military folks by telling them the experiment is flawed. Jimmy points out that a real pilot would know he was dying and would be affected by that knowledge, so the experiment is useless. The chimps try to escape, leading to a standoff between the military and Virgil and another chimp named Goliath. They save Virgil, but Goliath dies from radiation poisoning. Jimmy and Terry try to steal a military plane to help the chimps escape, but they're stopped by the military police. Virgil then pilots the plane away with some of the monkeys, and they crash in the nearby Everglades. 
The military eventually gives up the search, but Jimmy and Terry see Virgil hiding in the bush with his chimpanzee girlfriend before all the chimps disappear into the Everglades. And that is Project X. Excellent. Yeah, fun movie. I mean, I haven't seen it in a long time, but I do remember really liking it back in the day. I, I wonder how it holds up, but as a, as a young teen, perhaps, or tween, probably, uh, yeah. I enjoyed the heck out of it. Yeah, I remember enjoying it when I saw it, but I, I tried to track it down to watch it again for this, but I couldn't find it. So Yeah, I don't think it's, like I said, I don't think it's well represented. I don't think it's one of those films that has sort of, you know, kind of like when we did the Presidio a couple of weeks ago, same thing. It just doesn't seem to really be in the public consciousness very much, even yeah. though it was relatively popular back in the day. Yeah, it's also one of those ones which probably ripe for a remake. Somebody pick it up. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, you just got the basic plot. Right, right. And, and it's, not, it's not the kind of one where people be going, how dare you remake this one? Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And Matthew Broderick could play the uh, the angry scientist this time because he's... Oh, that'd be know. good, yeah. Yeah, could do that. All right, well, that's Project X. Phil, why don't you take us into your day after? Okay, after the events of the... Uh, the after the events of the film, Jimmy and Terry are arrested and interrogated as they were involved in a top-secret project and had caused lots of problems, stole things, broke into stuff... And obviously, all the chimps escaped. Uh, Jimmy is court-martialed and sentenced to five years in prison. If anybody out there does know how much you will get sentenced, don't bother getting in because it's just for the sake of this. <laughs> I, you should know by now that we're not always, you know, that, you know, the fact check thing doesn't right. always Details-oriented isn't exactly the words you would use to describe us. Yeah, that's, that's true. So he's sentenced to five years or whatever's appropriate, as long as it's not too long. Right. Terry is released, uh, but she's told that she would face jail time if she speaks about the events that have, she's witnessed and been involved in. Virgil and the other chimps head deep into the Everglades. After one chimp is killed by an alligator, they try and keep to the trees as much as they can, and eventually they find a place to call home, and the small colony of chimps rests after their long journey. And that's my day after. Very cool. I, I think it's funny that there's a little bit of a similarity in how we start our endings, because I a lot of times with these movies, people end up doing stuff with the military, and then it's like, well, the military doesn't just let people go. I know, that's it, yeah. <laughs> so we're going to so see... I mentioned at the end... From what I remember, well, I don't remember the film, but I reckon at the end, they probably Matthew Broderick and Helen Hunter are going, yeah, we did it, they escaped. Right, and then Yay, it's like two seconds fame. later, right, the handcuffs go on. Yeah, oh, crap. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So mine mine might start off in similar fashion. That's fine, I'm sure everybody understands, but uh, go on and hit me with it. What's your day after? Okay, well, Terry and Jimmy are in deep trouble with the military. Oh, no, I didn't see that coming. All right. <laughs> it turns out that contrary to what you see in the movies, when you mess with the military and do things like try to steal a jet and dismantle a billion-dollar top-secret project, they don't just let you go. Who would have thought that? However, they also know that they just can't throw them into prison without explanation because that might lead to inquiries into classified projects that certain higher-ups don't want to be made public. So, they put Terry and Jimmy into a special program the military developed at the beginning of the 80s. It's a retraining program designed especially for civilians who have defied the military, and it's designed to essentially reprogram them into productive members of the public. Mm. So far, they've successfully reprogrammed a couple of young teens who almost destroyed the world with a computer war game simulator, <laughs> a family who helped harbor a fugitive robot boy, a couple of college kids who think they're real geniuses, and most recently, a whole group of kids who fought monsters in a small town in Indiana. Awesome. After a few weeks of reprogramming, Programming Terry and Jimmy, they're ready to be integrated back into the world. Wow. And that's my day after. I want to see that mashup of all those characters <laughs> yeah. all those films. Yeah, I just think it's, you know, there's all these movies out there where it's just always like teenagers and kids and families taking on the military and winning. And I'm like, there's got to yeah, be consequences to that. Weird kind of projects. Was that Daryl who wanted? Uh, yeah, Daryl was the robot player. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, wow. Oh, I like it. Thank oh, I can't you. wait to see what happens with that. Thank you, thank you. Meanwhile, I want to hear about yours, so tell us about your immediate aftermath. Okay. Jimmy was released after three years for good behavior and for, you know, promising he's not going to do anything more. What can he do? Nobody's going to believe him. He was at a loss, though, as to what to do next. His Air Force career was over. But eventually, after bumming around for a while, doing some odd jobs, he got a job as a pilot in Miami. Nothing special. Just flying tourists around the coast, down to Key West, things like that. But it also meant he could fly over the Everglades. He was curious to find out whether Virgil and the chimps had survived. So far, he'd spotted nothing. But then on a return flight, when it was just him and the plane, Jimmy thought he spotted something. Something strange. And that's my immediate aftermath. Hmm, I'm interested to see what he spotted. Well, you just have to wait and see. I will do that. I will do that. So go on, and what's going on with your immediate aftermath? The reprogrammed uh, Jimmy and Terry. Okay, well... Terry looks around the zoo where she works as an animal feeder. As she does every day, she visits each cage, feeds the animals inside, spends a few minutes with them, and then moves on to the next. But today, like every day, she spends a few extra minutes at the chimpanzee cage. She doesn't know why she feels such an attachment to them, but for some reason, she does. 
Meanwhile, several states away, Jimmy pulls up the landing gear on the commuter jet he's flying. It's a short flight from Minneapolis to Duluth, and his passengers are mostly businessmen. It's the same flight he makes three times a day, every day, and like always, as he flies across the skies, he imagines himself in a fighter jet taking on enemy combatants. When he lands in Duluth an hour or so later, he never even sees the undercover military man who observes him. The man makes a note that placing the subjects in professional fields similar to their own helped reinforce the reprogramming, and then he furtively exits the airport. And that's where we're going to leave it for now. Oh, okay. I like this. So this is like Project Y, isn't it? Yeah, right. Exactly. Mm. That would be the name of the sequel, Project Y. Yeah, yeah. And then people would be like, Project Y, would I want to see this? Yeah, Project Sad. <laughs> Sleepy. Yeah. And then we run out. It can only be a trilogy because after that, there's no, no other letters left. Yeah. <laughs> Project X.1. Right, right. Okay, no, I like it. I like that, though. So I'm looking forward to see what happens there. Thank you. Will they break the programming? We'll, we'll have, to, have to wait and see. Uh, meanwhile, mm. let's hear what's going on in your long term. I want to find out about the strange thing. Okay, Jimmy and Terry had lost touch during the past few years, so Terry was surprised to see Jimmy waiting for her as she finished work one day. They went for a coffee and made small talk until Terry asked Jimmy why he was really there. He pulled out some photos. They showed a small area in the Everglades. At first glance, she saw nothing. Then looking closer, she realized there were, there were buildings that had been fashioned out of the trees. It was a small settlement. There was even some kind of crude plain kind of structure built. Hmm. A few days later, Jimmy and Terry made it to the settlement in the Everglades. There they were met by Virgil. The chimp seemed different, a little taller, and a glimmer of intelligence in his eyes seemed brighter. He brought them into the settlement and introduced them to the other chimps. They could also see the structures that they'd noticed, and the, what they thought had been a plane was just a crude structure uh, where some of the other chimps were sitting in it. They appeared to be using a stick and pretending to fly this plane. Uh, there were also a number of baby chimps, and Virgil explained in sign language how they needed to find a larger place for them to live so that the manfolk could not find them. Terry realized that Virgil's vocabulary had increased. Virgil nodded and signed that all the chimps seemed to be smarter than they were. Could be the radiation from the project, said Jimmy, but that makes no sense. But we'll move on from that. <laughs> Through lots of time and patience, Jimmy and Terry ended up flying the chimps to an uninhabited island off the coast where the new colony could call home. Jimmy and Terry promised to return every few months to see how they were getting on. And over time, the colony grew, the chimps grew smarter, and developed in strange ways. And that's where mine ends. Mm -hmm. And the name of the island is Skull Island. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> and Captain Nemo's there and the people right, from, you know, right. the prize. And from right, the right, 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 exactly. Oh, very cool. I like it. Okay, well, that's, uh, that's my ending. What's going on with yours? All right, well, three years later, Jimmy has slowly moved up from regional air pilot work to national flights. Meanwhile, Terry has become assistant director of the zoo. But both of them are plagued by dreams of a place they don't recognize, and for some reason, monkeys, which puzzles Jimmy more than it does Terry. And things would have kept going exactly as the military had planned, but for one small moment of coincidence. As Terry is flying to a conference in Dallas, Jimmy, who's piloting her plane, sees her as she's embarking. With one look at each other, they recognize their faces from their dreams, and their memories both come flooding back. Shaken, they maintain their composure and finish the flight to Dallas, where they meet up after landing. Checking into a hotel under assumed names, they embrace affectionately before comparing notes and catching up. Finally, Terry says, So what do we do now? We can't take on the military by ourselves. Now, Jimmy says, Now we call in the big guns. My cousin Ferris. No, I'm kidding. I'm sorry. I couldn't resist. Uh, God help the military. Yeah, right? Now we call in the big guns. We're going directly to the White House, and we're taking the press with us. And that's the end. Oh, very good. I like that. Thanks. So there you go. I like the way both of ours leave it open for the next, the third film in the trilogy. They do. And also, I will say, I have an after the credits scene. Oh, my God. <laughs> go on in. All right. Me it's it. a little obvious, but I, still, I couldn't resist. Fade to black, credits roll, comes back up. Deep in the Florida Everglades, Virgil and his female companion, who's taken on the name Virginia, are happy with their adopted family of chimpanzees. Virgil teaches Virginia sign language, and it isn't long before they start a family. When their first child is born, Virginia signs, what should we name him? Virgil thinks about it and then replies, we shall call him Caesar. You maniac. You maniac. You did it. My God, you did it. <laughs> Damn me to hell. <laughs> you know, it, I didn't want to go full Planet of the Apes, as I'm sure you didn't either, because it was just too obvious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, was, I was so tempted. I did have a few. I was just going to go, and it just, yeah, it all links into Planet of the Apes. Right. Blah, blah, blah. It, it was it was such an obvious thing. So I, I purposefully avoided going with that for my main ending, but I had yeah, to throw yeah. in a little, 
a little nod oh, definitely, to it. Yeah. So. I'm glad you did. Thank you. Thank and you. it makes sense. It's uh, it's Planet of the Apes uh, origin from a different dimension of Earth. Right, right. Exactly. Excellent. I like it. All right, cool. Well, there you go. That is Project X. Phil, do you have any trivia about Project X for us? I've just got a couple of things. Uh, in one of the scenes where the guards are watching uh, the game, one of the guards is called Froman. Oh, uh, nice. And <laughs> Ape Froman was Ferris Bueller's alias in, Pro- in Ferris Bueller's Day Off, which was in 1986, the year before Project X. Sausage King of Chicago. Yes. So that's a nice little touch. I'm hoping it's because of that. I would imagine. Uh, and also, uh, Terry's car license plate is BDR529, which was the same as the Bluesmobile in the Blues Brothers. Oh, that's fun. Uh, but that's, uh, that's a couple of things, and that's Project X. Excellent. All right, well, that's Project X. Let's move on then to Superbad. Yes, Superbad. Yes, Superbad. Yes. That's, yes. that's about all I have to say about that. Yeah, to be honest, before this, yeah, this is 2007 Superbad. The one directed by Greg Matola. I'm the only film I know called Superbad, so I don't know why I said the one directed by. Right. <laughs> I saw this when it first came out, I think, or the year after, and I've not seen it since. At the time, I remember watching it and laughing and finding it funny, but I watched it again. I know people love this film. Yeah, they do. And I watched it again, though, to do this, and, uh, God. It hasn't aged well, I bet, right? Yeah, I just I just found it hard to watch. Yeah, maybe it's because I'm older, but it's only about eleven years ago. Yeah, yeah, I found it hard to watch. Yeah, I I never liked it that much to begin with. To be honest with, I, I yeah. with you, I, I remember when it came out, it was a huge hit, and everybody was talking about it. And you know, I I I finally watched it. I think I watched it right away when it came out on video. I don't think I saw it in theaters, but I watched. You know, I saw it within three or four months of it coming out originally, and I was just not impressed. I thought there was a yeah. few funny moments, but by and large. Uh, you know, I just have never been a big fan of all the stuff that comes out of the Judd Apatow factory. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and this is very, um, very archetypal of those types of movies that he makes, where it's just rambling, throwing all the comedy against the wall to see what sticks. And usually, what sticks is the more vulgar stuff and not the more clever stuff. And and so again, yeah, I get a, yeah. I get a handful of chuckles out of each one of them, but I I never really I don't really like many of the characters. I didn't really like the film all that much. Um, so I know people are going to be booing and hissing at their, you know, stereo or podcast device or whatever, but I'm just, I'm just not a big fan. So yeah, yeah. I was, I was, I was disappointed that I didn't enjoy it as much as I had. I thought I was going to again. Yeah. Sorry about that. But, uh, the bits with McLovin, I liked all that. Yeah. Yeah. I do too. Police. I think that'll be evident a, in my, in my yeah. ending actually. Cause it's a bit more surreal up bit with him. Right. Why don't you take us through the plot of the film as, as it were, uh, yeah, yeah. refresh people's so, memories as to what happens in the movie. Okay. Well, we follow two, th- we follow two friends, uh, Seth, played by Jonah Hill, and Evan, played by Michael Sarah. They're about to finish high school, and they get invited to a house party. So with their friend Fogel, uh, played by Christopher Mintz Plass, who's a.k.a. McLovin, they head off to get booze for the party and chase after a couple of girls, played by Martha McIsaac and Emma Stone. Uh, McLovin ends up getting mixed up with two cops who take him on a wild and crazy trip. After many highs and lows, Seth and Evan uh, get to the party with booze, they sort of hook up with the girls, but they don't. They have a bit of a falling out. And then they realize, you know, that they are good friends, tell each other they love each other at the end. They end up in the shopping mall with the two girls and they sort of go their separate ways, uh, which shows that they will eventually, when they go to college, they will still be friends, but they're not going to be uh, such as a close-knit duo as they thought they were. And that's that's pretty much the film. Nicely done. That about sums up everything you need to know, I think. Yeah, I think so. There's a, a few little cameos from the usual uh, comedy crowd. Yeah. Yeah, all the usual people. Like Kevin Corrigan and Joe Latruglio and a few others who are always in, in those films together. Yep, yep. So that's, uh, that's it. But do you want to uh, take us into your day after? Sure thing. As Evan, Becca, Jules, and Seth are leaving the mall, Seth is hit by a school bus and killed. <sighs> that damn bus driver. <laughs> I know. That's, uh, that's Jonah Hill's character for people who can't remember which is which. Yeah. Uh, the three of the remaining kids are sad, and it creates an awkward tension between them that eventually causes them all to go their separate ways. Before long, it's time for college to start, and Evan rooms with Fogel, who's decided to go by the name McLovin full-time now. Evan is worried that McLovin is going to destroy his social status at the new school, but instead, the opposite happens. Turns out, McLovin did a lot of maturing over summer break, and he's a completely different person now. McLovin becomes an instant star on campus. He first gets noticed because of his name, but people start to find out that he's actually a cool guy and he gets along with everyone. The nerds love him because he's nerdy. The jocks love him because he helps them get beer. The girls love him because he's not a jock. And teachers love him because he's smart and does well in school. Evan has to make a decision. Does he ride McLovin's coattails to popularity or does he set out and blaze his own trail? And that's my day after. That's a good day after, and it's. I think any sequel would probably follow on uh, McLovin. Yeah, yeah, because he was the only character one. in the movie I, I kind of liked. But <laughs> yeah, but uh, Seth, eh, and his uh, 
hit by Mike's bus driver. Yeah, well, he's on a school bus this time, I thought. So you see, I'm, I'm sort of like, you know, paying a little homage to the fact that it's a high school movie. Yeah, wow, okay. But still the bus driver. He's just taking a side job as a school bus driver. I really didn't think the bus driver was going to show up. Yeah, I, one, I, but, uh, I really didn't like Jonah Hill in this movie. Okay, that's good. What are you going to do? Well, that's, that's the way it goes. Well, I'll just, uh, spoiler alert, there's not going to be any serial killers in my end. All right. Well, I let's don't think so anyway. Yeah, well, let's let's hear it. Give us your uh, <laughs> give us your day after then. Okay, Seth, Jules, Evan, and Becca meet up after a day at the mall. Uh, they catch a movie, get some food, and all eventually head all eventually head back to their separate homes. Seth and Evan talk to each other later that night on the phone. They just talk about the stupid things that happened at the party and make up stories about the sex that they almost had, but they don't actually, you know, make it clear. They they just blag a lot about uh, how far they got with the girls. Right. Fogel wakes up in bed with a set of handcuffs and a nightstick, and f- for a minute he panics, but then he remembers his exploits with Officers Slater and Michaels. <laughs> he was McLovin, and everybody would remember his name. <laughs> and that's my day after. That's awesome. <laughs> just just that slogan alone. He was McLovin, and everybody would remember his name. I want that on a T-shirt. <laughs> yeah, but that's, uh, that's my day after. What's going on with your immediate aftermath? <laughs> All right, well, when we left Seth, we had a decision to make. Does he ride McLovin's coattails to popularity, or does he set out and blaze his own trail? Well, Evan takes about a second to decide. He rides McLovin's coattails to popularity. He's no fool. He knows how hard it is to gain any respect from kids at school. So he allows his status as McLovin's roommate to elevate his own. And before he knows it, he's at all the coolest parties, dating the hottest girls, and pretty much nailing the entire college thing. Before long, he blossoms from the shy, nerdy teenager he was into a confident, popular young man. However, things take a turn for the worse when McLevin, as the two friends have become known, see what I did there? Because <laughs> yeah. I mostly because I, like I got tired of yeah. saying McLevin and Evan, it, I just knew I was going to yeah, mess yeah, that yeah. up. So McLevin, uh, they take a weekend trip out to Las Vegas. They're mistaken for a group of MIT students who are counting cards, and they find themselves on the run from casino and mafia goons, hiding out in a flea bag motel on the Vegas Strip. They have only one choice: it's time to call in Officer Slater and Michaels for help. And that's where we're going to leave it for now. Mm, okay, I like it. Thank you. For new listeners, we don't know what the one's written. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> and I'm not saying it, no, it's because it's going to be some vague similarity. All right. It's not, yeah, but just some, yeah. Okay. But no, no, I like it. I like what's going on. All right, fair enough. Well, let's hear it then. Give, give us your immediate aftermath. I'm curious. Yeah, this doesn't show up though to my long term, though, the similarity. Oh, all right, all right. Okay, uh, okay my immediate aftermath, uh, the legend of McLovin followed him to college. Seth was amazed at this when he visited Evan and Fogel. Fogel was stupidly popular on campus. Everybody seemed to know him and was talking about him. It only took Seth a few minutes to find his friends. They were drinking at a local college bar, and after hugs and catching up, Evan and Fogel told them of their plans for a huge party that they were arranging for that very night. Seth had seen the flyers for the event and was excited to party with his friends once again. I've just got to try and score a big stash of weed, said McLovin. Who's your dealer, asked Seth. A guy named Saul Silver. And that's my immediate aftermath. <laughs> as soon as you said the weed, I was like, I know where this is yeah. going. Oh <laughs> well, yeah, I thought we'd have to get a bit of that. Uh, you know, I, I toyed with the idea of crossing over in some other uh, Apatow Factory movies, and it was just like, it's such a rabbit hole to go down. Like, where does it stop? Oh, no, Do you know what I, I mean? Know. Like, there's. I just thought I'd go with that Yeah, one. no, no, I, it makes sense. makes sense. I like it. Uh, so, yeah, in case you're not sure who Saul Silver is, that's uh, James Franco's character from Pineapple Express. And we also went after the ending for that one back in episode 81. There you go. So you can scooch back and listen to Another that. film I'm not a big fan of. You can hear me talk bad yes. about that one too. Yeah, but I, I like that one. That's true. That. that was my immediate aftermath, but what's going on with your long term? All right. Well, as McLevin find themselves tied to the roller coaster at Vegas's New York, New York Hotel with a bomb 30 seconds from detonation, the situation doesn't look good. Things really took a strange turn when Slater and Michael showed up. Now, the mafia wasn't after them anymore, but an international criminal conspiracy ring was, having mistaken McLevin, Slater, and Michaels for members of the spy organization's Kingsmen and their American counterpart, the Statesmen. (laughs) (laughs) I go, that's awesome. Thanks. Slater and Michaels were killed, and now McLevin are about to be framed for an explosion that will kill thousands of tourists. As the timer hits zero, McLevin closed their eyes and scream, but nothing happens. They open their eyes to find Tom Cruise in the front seat of the roller coaster, holding the now diffused bomb in his hands. Tom Cruise, Evan stammers. I thought you just played a spy in the movies. Keep thinking that, Tom says. Then he winks, flashes his million-dollar smile, jumps off the moving roller coaster, and disappears into the night. McLovin turns to Evan and says, That took a seriously weird turn at the end. 
If I didn't know better, I'd say somebody was f***ing with us. Then they both turn and look right at the camera as the end credits begin to roll. (laughs) (laughs) And that's the end. (laughs) Goddamn Tom Cruise. (laughs) It kind of was one of those things where I was like, you know, there's no reason I can't be absolutely ridiculous with this this movie because Superbad is ridiculous. There's no reason we can't be super ridiculous with any film we do. Right. I like that. Right, but certain ones it fits more. You know what I mean? Like you don't want to do that with, you know, Citizen Kane necessarily, but it it, it fits with Superbad. And I think we should have Tom Cruise turn up saving the day in every ending we do. <laughs> so <that>. awesome. <laughs> oh, brilliant. <laughs> uh, meanwhile, let's hear what's going on then. Let's finish things up with your long term. Okay. The party was a huge success. Everyone was there. Everyone except Seth, Evan and Fogel. Everything had gone as planned until Fogel had mistakenly gone to the wrong address. Due to a series of misunderstandings, Fogel had been Fogel had been misidentified as Socrates McLovin Johnson, <laughs> an international drug dealer of some repute. <laughs> They had been arrested by the DEA and FBI, who had been after Socrates for five years. However, during all the confusion of the arrest, Fogel, Seth and Evan had somehow managed to escape. They had jumped into the back of a truck to hide, but the doors had closed on them and it had driven off. In a panic, they listened to the conversation coming from the front of the van. It turned out the real Socrates was in the driver's seat, and looking in the back, they found it was piled high with bundles of weed. Twenty minutes later, the van was pulled over by police officers Slater and Michaels. <laughs> it was a coincidence, but it was a good one. Yeah. Shenanigans followed, guns were fired, the F word was said an awful lot, <laughs> and after a slow motion car chase, <laughs> Ev- Evan, Seth, Fogel, Slater and Michaels had apprehended Socrates. The DEA thanked them for their assistance. Officer Slater and Michaels had heard about McLovin's college party and drove them all the way there. It was just getting good. Just before they went in, the two cops opened the boot and passed to Seth, Evan, and Fogel each a one-pound bundle of weed. <laughs> Courtesy of Socrates, said Michael. Now go party. And that's my long term. That's awesome. <laughs> Thank, you. Thank you very much. I like it very much. Definitely keeps true to the spirit of the film. Yeah. Yes, a lot of mistaken identities in our in our endings, though. Go figure. Yeah, and I realize there's lots of, like, uh, mistaken identities. What is it? Misunderstandings, misidentified. Anything with a miss in front. Right, right. Apart from misandry. <laughs> right, so there we go. Exactly. All right, nicely done. Well, Phil, do you have any super trivia for us? Yes, Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg started writing the script when they were 13, and that's why the main characters are called Seth and Evan. Uh, the F word was used 186 times in the film, mm, and the, the movie is 113 minutes long, which works out at 1.6 uses of the word per minute. Wow. That's a lot of... <laughs> yes, it is. Uh, it was the film debut of Emma Stone and Christopher Mintz-Plasse. And as Mince Plass was only 17 at the time of filming, his mother was required to be on set by law during filming of a sex scene. Oh, jeez. Yeah, imagine that. Yeah. Hey, Ma, today's my sex scene. <laughs> right. But that's uh, super bad. All right, nicely done. If you want to get in touch and let us know how much you love super bad and why we are wrong for not liking, please do. All right, well, that's going to wrap up our endings then. Let's move on to 100 years of Hollywood and 100 episodes wherein Phil and I take a year from the past century of Hollywood and share our top 10 films. This week, we are doing not just one year, but six. We are wrapping up the 1950s with 1950, 1952, 1954, 1956, 1957, and 1959. And this is actually going to be our last uh, 100 Years of Hollywood in 100 episodes in its current form. Um, and then we're going to do something uh, a little different for the next few episodes leading up to 100, episode 100. And then we're going to relaunch with a new second half feature uh, after our ending. So that's going to be exciting. Uh, what's it going to be? Got to stick around episode 100 to find out. Oh, it's going to be, it's going to blow your mind. <laughs> uh, spoiler, it's going to be about films and so yeah on. right and it's probably not going to blow your mind actually it's not that entirely mind-blowing but it'll it's, be fun it could blow my mind <laughs> that doesn't take a lot oh that blew my mind <laughs> <laughs> all right so phil why don't you go ahead and kick us off then with your number 10 yes my uh my number 10 is this was a tricky one to do because there's so many years uh, but there was also so many good films yes it was it was tricky for sure anyway here we go my number 10 is from 1950 and it is harvey uh directed by henry costa and based on the play of the same name this is the one starring james stewart uh who james stewart plays a, a drunk whose best friend is harvey a six foot three and a half inch tall rabbit that only he can see and I always liked the concept when I was a kid. And when I finally saw the film, I loved it. It was great because, you know, you, you, you're, you know, all these people go, no, he's not a real rabbit like this. And you're watching it and you're not sure whether he is just seeing it because he's drunk or whether it is a real rabbit. And then there's all these little things going on. You go, well, what was that? Was it this? But it's just great, great film. James Stewart is always brilliant to watch. Uh, it's a good little fantasy kind of weirdness about it. 
and I really enjoyed it, and it's Harvey. Great pick. It was uh, probably would have been my number 11. It was really close to making yeah, it on my yeah. list because I do love that film, and I have enjoyed it since I was a kid, but it, it just got edged out. Like you said, there was a lot of good movies in this episode, so uh, it didn't make my list, but but I'm glad it made yours. Yes, but uh, do you want to hit me with your number 10? Sure. It is the obligatory Disney picture, and it is 1950s Cinderella, which, of course, is a, a definite classic, The maybe you know one of the great Disney princess yeah. films, um, and I, I do like it's not just on here because it's Disney. I do I do really enjoy it. I loved it as a kid. I loved the mice, you know, Jacques and Gus Gus and all those and everything and the pumpkin scene and the prince and the glass slipper. It's just got it's a classic t- story and it's told amazingly well. Um, and I do I do really enjoy it. And we all know I'm a sucker for Disney films. So, of course, it had to make it onto my list. But it's at number 10. There were a lot of other movies that I, I like a little bit better. No good pick. Didn't make my list. But I think because I've only seen it a couple of times, to be honest, right, that one. For right. some reason, it's... Uh, yeah, you know, there's some some Disney films just sort of slip by. Yeah. You only see them now and again. Whereas others, you've seen <laughs> loads and loads of right, times. Right, right. I hear you. Wait. Yeah. Okay, my number nine is On the Waterfront from 1954, uh, which stars Marlon Brando and Carl Malden and the whole... Uh, could have been a contender speech, yep. but it's, it focuses on union violence and corruption uh, with longshoremen on, on the docks. And that sounds pretty boring. <laughs> yeah, kind of. But it's, uh, it's, it's a great film. It's one of those ones where it's, you know, people go and it's a brilliant film to maze. And one of those ones where sort of when I was a younger person, deliberately sort of avoiding it, going, well, no, it can't be that good. I'm not going to watch it. But I remember finally sitting down and watching it and just being blown away. Which just It's mainly people talking. Uh, a few fish fights, things like this, but it's just it's fascinating, and uh, Marlon Brando is is amazing. I mean, you sometimes forget he becomes a bit of a parody in later years, but incredible actor, and he does great things. Uh, and this the film was written by Bud Schulberg, but the famous line, you know, could have been a contender, could have been somebody that was ad libbed apparently by Brando. So I think that'd almost be if you're the screenwriter, you must go, damn it, damn it all to hell, <laughs> right? But uh, it, that's my number nine. Good pick, good pick. Didn't make my list, but uh, obviously a, a worthwhile inclusion. My number nine is a tie. It's the only tie I put on the list, but I think that, that it makes sense as to why. Uh, both from 1954, and they are Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea and Creature from the Black Lagoon. Mm-hmm. Obviously, a little a little aqua theme there. Um, Creature from the Black Lagoon, of course, is one of the classic Universal monster movies. Sort of the last one of the. Uh, the original bunch um we've talked about it we didn't after the ending for it uh but it's it's a great film yeah we did that back in episode 47 there you go uh and 20 20- that was so long ago as well <laughs> a lot of them this happens as you do this show for a long time yeah uh, and 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea is just a childhood favorite of mine. I always liked it. Obviously, uh, the whole Jules Verne story, I was always enthralled by that that end scene with the the giant squid and everything. Uh, it just, you know, Kirk Douglas is in it. It's just a great film. I think it holds up pretty well. It's got a lot of neat special effects, and it has that sort of 50s Disney live-action feel to it, which is yeah. kind of unique, and you can't really get anywhere else. So, so those are my two number nine films, both ones I enjoy greatly. Both excellent movies, and they both almost made my list, but purely because there's so many great films from these years. They just kept getting pushed back. Completely understandable. Uh, my number eight is from 1959, and it is Some Like It's Hot, uh, directed and produced by Billy Wilde and starring Tony Curtis, Marilyn Monroe, and Jack Lemmon. Two guys, they witness uh, the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. They go on the run. They end up uh, dressing up as women and joining an all-girl band and meeting Marilyn Monroe. Hilarious shenanigans follow on from that. Tony Curtis and Jack Lemmon are superb together. Marilyn Monroe is brilliant. One of those ones, Monroe, she always, you think back to she's this, you know, the gorgeous bombshell, but she's a great comedic actress. She just, she's just brilliant. Just a classic film, you know, pushing the boundaries from back in the day. Uh, but it's a, one of the one of the best comedies of all time. And it's my number eight. Um, because the film men- uh, features cross-dressing and sort of toys with homosexuality, it was produced without approval from the motion from the Motion Picture Production Code, mm. which was pretty good for that back then. Yeah, I didn't realize that. But it was one of the. Uh, it was shortly a few years after that the uh, the code was sort of killed killed off because people realized you know it was a bit silly. Right, right. An excellent pick, one we may be hearing from again. Spoiler alert. Mm, okay. uh, my number eight is High Noon from 1952, starring Gary Cooper and Grace Kelly. Uh, it's the story of a, a lawman in a lawless town. There's some bad guys coming to kill him, and nobody wants to help him, and so he's got to 
take them all on his own. Uh, and it's kind of uh, got a ticking clock motif throughout as things, you know, get closer and closer. And there's a great climax where he has to take on all these bad guys by himself. And it's just a classic Western. I'm not a huge Western fan, but this is one of the good ones. And it's just a film that really holds up extremely well. It's a classic for a reason. So that's my number eight. An excellent pick. Uh, my number seven is a double whammy. And it's one of them is High Noon. Oh, very good. <laughs> Same as you. It's a great film. Uh, the, the tension builds. It cranks up as, the, you know, time's ticking away as this as the sheriff's trying to get some guys to help him, but nobody will help him. And the other one in this is uh, Gunfight at the OK Corral, a couple of westerns. Uh, Gunfight at the OK Corral is from 1957 and stars Bit Lancaster's Wyatt Earp and Kirk Douglas as Doc Holliday. And as always, whoever plays Doc Holliday steals the show. But it's a great film, great western, two legends in the lead, and uh, also stars Anthony Quinn, uh, Ronda Fleming, lots of, lots of cool people. And I always like the story of the Gunfight at the OK Corral. And that's my number seven. That and High Noon. Very good. Uh, my number seven is from 1954. It is Dial M for Murder, directed by the great Alfred Hitchcock and starring Ray Milland and Grace Kelly, who makes her second appearance in two uh, chart positions here. Uh, it's an, a great film about a woman who picks up the phone and thinks she overhears her husband planning a murder. Mm. What more do you need to say? It's Hitchcock. It's tense. It's it's suspenseful. Grace Kelly is fantastic, and I love it. So that's my number seven. Oh, an excellent choice. Once again, didn't make my list, but I'm glad I made yours. All right. I need to watch that one again. It's been a long time yeah, since I've seen it. it's one. really good. Okay, my number six is Invasion of the Body Snatchers from 1956. I think it's the one directed by Don Siegel. I think this was the first uh, Body Snatchers film. Yeah, because it was adapted from uh, the 1954 science fiction novel, The Body Snatchers. So this was the first one. Classic starring Kevin McCarthy and Dana Winter, or Dana Winter. I always like the story, The Invasion of the Body Snatchers, but I remember seeing this one and just being, you know, just getting sucked into it and you're just going, oh my God, is there going to be any way out of it? Right. And this one did have a bit more of an upbeat ending compared to some of the other ones. Right. I'm looking at you, Donald Sutherland. <laughs> uh, but uh, it's a great story and done really well. I think it works. It fits in with the time, especially because it was all the, uh, back in the 50s, it was all... Yeah, the Cold War paranoia. Yeah, there was all the Cold War communism kind of thing going on. So it's like an allegory of what was going on at the time. But Kevin McCarthy's brilliant in it as he slowly unravels when he realizes the pod people are taking over. And that's my number six. Excellent choice. All right, my number six is from 1957, and it is David Lean's The Bridge on the River Kwai. Uh, which is, of course, a very well-known movie. Yes. And uh, it's on my 100 Essential Films poster, so I got to scratch that one off. Uh, I had seen it, but I watched it again recently, and it holds up extremely well. Of course, Sir Alec Guinness in the lead role. Um, it's a long film, but but it moves quickly. And, of course, it also gave birth to the famous whistling tune that younger listeners might know from The Breakfast Club. Um, but really just a, a, a great epic adventure film, and everyone in it is terrific, and it's just it's a it's a real spectacle to behold. Yeah, yeah. but it's a good film. No. It's a great film. So that's my number six. An excellent film. Didn't make my list. Almost did. It was that was one of the ones in the first, in like the short list, but it just kept getting pushed back. But fair enough. So many. But I'm glad I made your list. Yeah, yeah, for sure. All right, moving into our top fives, which of course gets even uh, even better because these you know we're covering six years here, so these should be some pretty good flicks. What do you got? Yeah, well, probably in the year this that came out in 1957, this might have been my number one or two, but it's uh, number five for me. It's 12 Angry Men, directed by Sidney Lumet. It's and stars Henry Fonda. Oh my God, Jack Warden, everybody in the cast is amazing. And it's all about 12 men on jury duty trying to determine whether a young kid is guilty or not of the crimes he's alleged to have committed. And it's just, it's spellbinding and it's an amazing piece of filmmaking because it is just 12 men in a room and it shouldn't work as well as it does. It's, you know, if you're watching it on stage, you could understand it works, but just, it must have been so hard working out the shots and things like that. But when you've got Henry Fonda and those people doing it, it's just, it's just tense and exciting and you're just drawn along by the whole thing and you just, yeah, it's brilliant. And it's, it's so rewatchable because you just, you're watching different faces every time you watch it, just see the reactions of people as it goes on. But that's my number five. An excellent pick. It is a brilliant movie. I agree. It doesn't sound great when you talk about it, but just watching it, you can't not get sucked into that movie, yeah. which is why it's one half of my number five. Oh, excellent. So 12 Angry Men is one half, and the other half is 1959's Anatomy of a Murder, uh, which is another jury-themed thriller starring James Stewart, directed by Otto Preminger. And this one's a little bit more about the investigation. It's about the lawyer who's trying to figure out you know, who did what exactly in this in this sort of case. Um, but it's another great film, and I love them both, so I put them on here at number five as a tie. Excellent choices. Okay, my number four is a sci-fi classic from 1956. It is Forbidden Planets. Yes. Starring Leslie Nielsen and Francis Walter Pigeon and Robbie the Robot. 
based on William Shakespeare's The Tempest. Spaceship lands on a planet. All the people who are meant to be there aren't there. Strange things have been going on. And we follow Captain Leslie Nielsen before he got into his spoof days and before his hair went white, if I recall correctly. Investigating what's going on. Brilliant effects, great story, great soundtrack, just the ele electronic theremin kind of thing going on. I uh, Just spellbinding. If your kids haven't seen it, sit down with them, put it on, they'll love it. And it's just great. Forbidden Planet is my number four. Good choice. Didn't make my list, but was on my short list. So it is a film that I enjoy. Yep. All right. My number four is also from 1956. A very different type of film, though. It is The Searchers, starring John Wayne, Vera Miles, and Natalie Wood, and directed, of course, by the great John Ford. Another Western, um, but this one's really great. I say but, like as if there aren't a lot of great Westerns, but um, <laughs> it's not a traditional Western in sort of that, you know, Cowboys versus Indians sort of way, although it does have cowboys and Indians in it. But it is about John Wayne going off and searching for a kidnapped girl who was taken by Indians and yeah. the uh, the whole search for for her and, and bringing her back and how what that entails and, and how people react and stuff like that. It's it's a it's definitely an epic western in my opinion. Shot in color, it's beautiful. John Ford, I mean, just gets those vistas and the scenery. And uh, John Wayne is terrific. And just I, this is one of those ones I watched. I think I actually watched it for a class in college. Uh, and I was interested because I like John Ford and I like John Wayne, but you know, you never know what to expect with older movies like that. But I was just riveted by it. I mean, it is, it will hold your attention from start to finish. So uh, that's my number four, The Searchers. An excellent choice. Got it made your list. Didn't make mine purely because I've not seen it in such a long time. Yeah, it gets hard I, with some I of these. Yep. Yeah. And I remember at the time, I think someone was quite young. And because it was, it's not, it's not like uh, one of the action packed Westerns. Right, right. It's more, so it's, I think. I need to see it again because it's one of those ones on my list I, and, and I've wanted to sit and watch for a long time, but I must get around to doing that. But I'm glad it made your list. I do recommend it. It does hold up very well. Okay. My number three is uh, Akira Kurosawa's Seven Samurai from 1954. Very good. If you haven't seen that Seven Samurai, you've probably seen Magnificent Seven, Battle Beyond the Stars or one of the many other things which have, which have taken the plot. But small village getting attacked by bandits. They hire a few samurai. I think it's seven in total. <laughs> I caught that. I was just a little yeah. late. <laughs> yeah. I, get, I get it. I caught it's you there. <laughs> yeah. I like that. Yeah. It's, it's a kid of Kurosawa's, one of his finest works of art, but it's just spellbinding. It's one of those long films, but when, if you haven't seen the film, you hear how long it is, you go, oh my God. Oh, black and white subtitle film. Many of you out there. Well, some of you out there might be thinking that, but it's one of those ones where you do sit and watch it. It just, just pulls you along and suddenly it's over and you're going, what the hell happened there? But it's amazing. And it's my number three. Excellent choice. My number three is the second appearance by director Alfred Hitchcock on this list. It is 1959's North by Northwest, starring Cary Grant. I mean, I don't know how much I really have to say about this film. Everyone knows at least the scene with Cary Grant running from the crop duster. Um, but there's so much more to this film than that. You know, it's it's yeah. it's terrific performances, so much suspense. It's definitely got a sense of, you know, how is he going to get out of this type of thing that makes movies so, you know, so exciting to watch. Yeah. And um, filmed in color just some great set pieces really terrific stuff one of hitchcock's best uh but still only number three on my list which leads you to wonder what are going to be better than north by northwest well <laughs> we can see but my number two is north by northwest there you go all right good choice i had a feeling it would be pretty high on your list as well yeah everything you said it's just it's just a superb film i just love seeing carrie Grant's character just purely case of mistaken identity just just you know, pinball from one one problem to another, but managing to get out of it and just growing and working and just it's just incredible. And it all just flows. You know, these things, these bad things keep happening to him, but it all just flows and just goes into the next thing and all this. It's just brilliant. One of the best. We mentioned it in the drunk the drink scenes. Yep. And though in the mini episode about drinking as well, that classic drunk scene, but so many classic moments. And Cary Grant is is just incredible yes yes indeed uh, that's my number two it's just if you have it and whenever it's on tv this happened a f few months back i was called around to my brother with had my daughter with me and he was there with his kids but it was on sort of he was messing around in the kitchen just making some lunch but north by northwest would just come on and we all end up sitting watching it and the kids were engrossed we just end up watching it talking a bit and then watching the next bit and going oh this is a great bit watch this watch this anyway north by northwest is my number two excellent pick
Well, I'm glad we're in agreement on that one, Phil. I had a feeling we might be, though. Yeah, I think it'd be on lots of people's yeah. lists, to be honest, that one. My number two has already appeared on your list, and I'd be lying if I said I wasn't a little surprised at how low down it was on your list. It is mm-hmm. Some Like It Hot from 1959. Yeah, yeah. I mean, widely considered one of the greatest comedies of all time, and, and it's a movie I've loved since I was a kid. This is definitely one of those classic Hollywood films that I watched early on. I've seen many times, and everyone in it is terrific. The, the last line of the movie is a classic. Yeah. I, you know, I, I was fairly upset obsessed with Marilyn Monroe when I was young, and I think a large part of that comes down to this movie. But it's just, it's funny, it's charming, it's delightful, and it holds up so, so well. Uh, so that's my number two. Yes. I'm wondering if you've got the same number one. There's a, I, you know, I could see this going either we absolutely have the same number one or we went in completely different directions because there was so many movies to pick from. But I, yeah, I, can't, yeah. I can't believe this movie that I have wouldn't be on your top ten. So yeah, so I'd, so we had six years to choose from right. all those films from those six years. Yeah, uh, my my number one is is from 1954. Yep. Okay. And it's directed by Alfred Hitchcock. Yeah. <laughs> all right. And it's Rear Window. It is Rear Window. That's my number one as well. Because <laughs> yeah. how could awesome. it not be your number one though? You said you know, know like know. it's like oh surprise we have the same number one but I mean it's Rear Window. That is one. I mean that is a masterpiece of a movie from everything from the acting to the script. To the directing, to the cinematography, to the to the damn set. Yeah, they built. Yeah, that's a. It's just a, that's a set. Yeah, I remember seeing it as a kid and going, "Oh my god, they built that." Uh-huh. Oh my god, that's not real street. Oh my god. Yeah, you know, it's. I, I've talked on the show before about like how Planet of the Apes was one of the first films I saw when I was young that sort of introduced me to cinema outside of kids' material. Yeah. Um, and I distinctly remember Rear Window being another one of those films. You know, I could probably trace back to a handful of movies that I saw as a kid that sort of, you know, got me out of the mold of watching kid stuff and into watching grown-up films. Yeah. And Rear Window was yeah. definitely one of them. I think I saw it when I was about mm, maybe nine or ten. And I was just enthralled by it. And it, it, it introduced me to James Stewart. It introduced me to Grace Kelly, who I've been in love with for many years. Yeah. It introduced me to Hitchcock. I think it was the first Hitchcock film I ever saw. Uh, and it remains one of my favorite, favorite, favorites of his. And it's just it's so good. I've told my kids about it. They haven't watched it yet, but they're getting about to the age now where I think they're ready to see it because uh, it's relatively tame, even though it does involve a murder plot, but it's not, there's no gore or blood or anything like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's just so tense at the yeah. end. You're just like, you're just sitting there, even though, you know, it's coming, you know, I still sit there with like my, my, my fingernails digging into the palms of my hand, just going, oh no, <laughs> right. oh, no, he's going to, he's going to get him. Yeah. It's, it's that good. It's crazy how Raymond Burr can be so menacing considering the way he looks in the film. Uh, yeah. Just, and he's Perry Mason. Yeah. So you just, you know, you, you yeah. think you wait for him to, to be there for truth and justice. And instead in this one, he's playing a, a different type of character. If you've never seen Rear Window, do yourself a favor, and as soon as this episode ends, go and stream it or rent it or buy it or do whatever you have to do. I I guarantee you it will be one of the most satisfying movie experiences you will ever have. It's utterly fantastic. Yeah, and it was one of the first films I reviewed on my Live for Films website. Really? Wow. Yeah, yeah. one of the first posts as well. Wow, very cool. Thank you. And that marks, but just for the record, that marks three Hitchcock films in my top 10 from these years in the 50s. So he was clearly firing on all cylinders oh, yeah, there's, uh, <laughs> during this time period. Rear Window, though, is just, yeah, as, as, as Mike said, if you've never seen it, do yourself a favor and watch it as soon as you can. Yeah, yeah, it's really worth it. Well, I'm glad that we had that as our number one, our joint number one, because I don't think anything else really could have been uh, number one in my opinion. So. Oh, definitely, yeah. But yeah, there's lots of other films, though, from those six years which could have made the list, but they didn't. Uh, try it for yourself. It's very tricky one to do. It is indeed. But the, some of them could be showing up in a future episode. We're going to get to that in just a second. Oh, yes, yes, yes. That does wrap up our top 10 list. But Phil, there's more in store. Tell people what we have coming up next week. So next time we're going to be going after the ending of Rain Man and Disney's The Black Hole. Yeah, that'll be a fun episode. I'm looking forward to that one for sure. Two great films in very different ways. Yes, that most definitely. Uh, and uh, Mike, do you want to tell the listeners what's going to be happening with our with our top 10 list? Yeah, well, as I mentioned earlier, this has actually wrapped up our 100 years of Hollywood 100 episodes. We have now gone through all 100 years from 1917 through 2017. But we are going to be relaunching with a new second half feature after episode 100. That's a big milestone for us, and it's coming up really soon. So between now and episode 100, we are going to be doing Movies We Missed. And this is simply going to go back over those past 100 years, and we're going to talk about the films that either didn't make our top 10 list because they were edged out or films we didn't see the first time. You know, we've been doing these lists for two years now, and in that time, we've watched a lot of movies. I know I've seen a bunch of films from different years that, uh, you know, had been out, but I had never gotten around to before. So it's sort of a chance to kind of revisit 
talk about films we might have missed that we didn't see or just ones that we wanted to fit on the list but we couldn't. And it'll be a good way for us to sort of say, hey, here's some some great things we've discovered in the past two years, maybe films we've re- revisited or changed our opinions on. So next week we're going to do our 1900s through 1950s because I don't know if there's as many films we've seen from those decades. And then each episode after that, we're going to go through a decade. We'll do the movies we missed from the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, and the 2000s. And that'll bring us to our big, supersized episode 100, which is going to have all kinds of cool and fun extra stuff. And then we'll relaunch with a brand new second half feature. So a lot of exciting stuff coming up. I'm very excited to see uh, what movies we might have reconsidered or seen for the first time that we hadn't watch the first time around so should be a lot of fun yeah most definitely it should be uh, lots of cool films coming up as well over the next few weeks i think there's gonna be a mix of some cult classics some big favorites that are ones that we just hadn't gotten around to um like i said definitely some reconsiderations you know i can think of a few off the top of my head that are gonna be fun to talk about so i'm looking forward to it yeah so uh, got a lot to look forward to indeed all right well that is going to wrap up our episode and that is going to be it for us for this week as always we thank you greatly for listening i'm mike spring and i'm phil edwards and we'll see you next week after the ending luckily though probably have to cut this next bit luckily though because i'm in the uk they don't often use guns so i should be all right <laughs> uh yeah <laughs> yeah a little, little we'll, we'll see how that plays <laughs> controversial outtake right they're the films. I'm also be go- uh, also be going yeah. uh, flubber. We'll also be doing. We'll also be doing uh, a catch up on some of the films for our 100 years of movies. Uh, so we could. Uh, what, what years are we finishing off, Mike? Well, that was a whole lot of jumbly jumbly. Let's maybe jumbly try that was, again. Yeah, 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 yeah. So they're the films we're doing for our after the endings. Mike, do you want to tell them what we're doing for our 100 films? Yes. No. no yeah. I get to know I'm not the only one who completely messes uh, up the name of that. Oh, segment. hi, oh, hi, oh. Sibilance, <laughs> sibilance. Okay. Uh, that's what we're doing for our after the endings. And Mike's going to tell us about our top 10 films of 100. Oh, bugger. <laughs> <laughs> the man makes a note in his notebook that placing the. Sub- yeah, of course, he makes a note in his notebook. Where else would he make a note? Okay. Thank you. Yeah, it's just. Uh, yeah, I couldn't think of. It was just. I wanted to. Yeah. I forgot, I forgot a laugh. Okay. I've got nothing to say. Yeah. <sighs> <sighs> These outtakes are just going to be me going, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be a lot of very <laughs> choppy was... Phil talking outtakes yeah. tonight. Yes. Uh... Oh, yeah. Hold on. I've just realized. <laughs> I wrote it down on two pieces of paper. Uh, well, that was a terrible just... idea. I just looked there and just saw I had eight films. So let me just, uh... yeah, I've got them here. Would you, you write? Eight films on one piece of paper and two films on the other piece yeah. of paper? Don't ask me why. What the hell reason could you possibly have for doing that? I think me from a few weeks back was going, Haha, this will mess with this head. <laughs> and then now they're playing, this year they changed their music, so they're playing It's a Small World, which is kind of like, ah. hmm, that seems like some copyright infringement. I don't think Disney licensed that out to you, <laughs> Mr. Dingling. <laughs> and I say that because that's the name of the ice cream truck, Mr. Dingling. Oh, I wasn't I just calling him that to be yeah, rude. Yeah. I'll let you do it because you'll do, do better than me. Um, all right. Especially the way I've been talking tonight. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> Might take a few extra minutes to explain it. Yeah. <laughs> List. F- uh, God. Okay. <laughs> I'm glad you did yeah, it. I caught your disease. <laughs>